Welcome to Recruiting Daily's Use Case Podcast, a show dedicated to the storytelling that happens or should happen when practitioners purchase technology. Each episode is designed to inspire new ways and ideas to make your business better as we speak with the brightest minds in recruitment and HR tech. That's what we do. Here's your host, William Tincup. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Use Case Podcast. My name is William Tincup. Happy to be here. I'm going to be speaking with Hans, and he's he represents the Mitchell Madison Group, which is MMG, and we'll kind of refer to it as MMG from here out. But he's going to kind of explain the firm, talk a little bit about what they do and uh, the problems they solve, etc., and uh, the use case that practitioners should make for working with them. So, uh, Hans. Do us a favor and introduce both yourself and MMG. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really sure. appreciate it. Um, Mitchell Madison Group is a general management consulting firm that I have owned and operated for quite a while now. We're in our 26th year of existence. Uh, and as a firm, we have done primarily what's called performance improvement. And it's sort of a sub-segment of management consulting that uh, deals with operational uh, optimization and things you do to corporations, but also to you know public entities and you know governments that shows real measurable improvements in terms of financial performance, right? So you you make more money, you have more higher revenue, you have reduced costs, you have better operations. So I would say that that focus is a little bit differentiated from what consultants are sometimes. Um, made fun of, which is sort of, you know, blue sky, great ideas, strategies. So we typically take a client's market position and a client's strategy as a given, and we optimize around that rather than, you know, coming up with brand new, you know, pie in the sky type strategy. And that's been very successful for us and our clients. I like that type of approach. Um, I personally have been a management consulting for pretty much my entire career. I have a, uh, degree uh, MBA from Dartmouth and have jumped into consulting more or less right after that because I couldn't think of something else to do <laughs> and, and I got stuck there and I really enjoy it. So the performance improvement obviously you can cut that in a lot of different ways. Um, how, how do y'all deal with the people part of performance improvement right? So one you know you can you can make machines and you can, you can make process. You can do all kinds of different things to make the overall company's performance improvement. And, and, you know, a lot of people are going to look at the bottom line and the net net of everything. And that's, it's, it's improved or it's not improved, but as it relates to people and, you know, and, and what you've seen through, you know, your almost 30 years of doing this, how do people approach performance improvement correctly, in your opinion, uh, when it comes to their people? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're asking that question. That, that's actually one of the um, sort of origins of our approach that's distinct from what, you know, the whole industry has been doing for many, many years, which is, you know, the first thing, you know, consultants do, which is why they have such a horrible reputation, <laughs> is, you know, cut people, right? Automate, cut people, uh, you know, like, I don't think there's many people in an organization that are happy to see a major consulting firm show up, you know, typically instills fear and, uh, you know, fear of change or being fired and all those kinds of things. I think that reputation is uh, well-deserved. 
we, um, like I said, you know, 26, seven years ago, we approached this from a different angle. We said, listen, why don't you, and worked for many, many big companies, uh, why don't you, rather than looking at, you know, having, doing the same with fewer people, people are part of your organization. Those are people, those are human beings that you should care about. What about the people that sell into you, your suppliers? They, while you should care about them as well, you probably should care a little bit less about them. So before you touch anybody and, you know, change their job or lay them off or whatever, why don't you make sure that what you're buying from the outside is absolutely optimal because that is, you know, where global market exists and that is where you should look for value first. And so a big part of what we do in performance improvement is, is called strategic sourcing. Um, and we just make sure that any dollar that's spent inside an organization that is not going to people and, and also technically not going to, you know, finance, bond or shareholders, which is essentially a purchase, is optimized. And what we found is uh, that, um, especially in service industries, many, many things that are um in fact, purchases are not viewed as such, right? So you, everybody thinks a purchase is buying office supplies, but it's also hiring a law firm. It's hiring a you know, PR firm. It's hiring you know, all kinds of professional services. And so what, what worked in our favor is that the trend towards buying things from the outside rather than making it on the inside, right? So the, the, this very, very long transition from the Henry Ford River Rouge, you know, like massively integrated factory to kind of like the Hollywood model where every product is a, is, a, is a project that's getting assembled has resulted in a lot more purchase transaction, explicit, implicit taking place that were not optimized. And the reason they weren't optimized is that a good mental model uh, or a taxonomy didn't exist for dealing with this, right? So the taxonomy, and I don't want to get too technical here, but people were very good at buying stuff you can drop on your foot, right? right. So um, it's a part, you can describe it, but how do you deal with you know, buying advertising agency services. How do you deal with all these creative things? And we developed um, approaches around that to deal with that. They were very successful. And that really, um, you know, was a big factor. But I think there's more to your question. There's also the question of, so because you can answer this two ways. The other question that I see, and, and um, I think going this way, is there's an HR component now that people... Um, are being purchased, essentially people-based people services are being purchased that used to also be inside your organization, right? So now you have a lot more contingent workforce um, that's becoming more normal, right? And so this idea of treating people that are, you know, on your payroll differently from people that are coming from an outside vendor that are, that are you know, contingent, there's largely legal differences, right? Mm -hmm. But should you be managing those different workforces completely differently and what decides that, right? That's the thing that we're really focused on right now because post-pandemic with remote working being totally acceptable and all these different models emerging, people are saying, well, what difference does it make if that person is on my payroll or not? Or, you know, how do I deal with that? You know, what's interesting, uh, as, you, as you're talking about it, it's looking at talent uh, for HR leaders and, uh, and even a C-suite, looking at talent as a portfolio and then saying, you know, seasonal, full-time, part-time, in-source, outsourced, you know, uh, contingent, freelance, whatever you want to, how do, how do they make those decisions or how do you help them 
make the decisions on what that portfolio should look like? Yeah, I think most companies have a good sense of what core competencies and what type of skills they need, you know, on a, on a permanent basis or semi-permanent right. basis, you know, given like all the, all the mission critical items, obviously, you know, incentive structures, people having stock options, those types of things. I mean, those are really important, you know, contributors to, to company success. They have to be on the payroll. And this is a different kind of, you know, pact that they have, but contingent workforce is approaching in some sectors, 50%, right. Of the workforce, which is dramatic. Right. And, uh, and I think the change is a little bit more on how do you manage the contingent workforce better. And I, and I think what's happened there is that there is a, an emergence of information, right? This, the, the, uh, the fact that you can now pretty much figure out what exact skill level you know, requires what pay in what location and that you're now free to source it you know, globally or multi-regionally, you know, given ignoring making licensing requirements and things like that. But by and large, like, you know, in the past, you could have, you had to hire somebody in a particular position. And funny enough, you know, in our business in management consulting, where you, you know, travel so much, we never did this. We said, I don't care where you live, as long as you live by an airport, right? And I think this mentality uh, is, is creeping into, you know, more traditional companies. And you have to really think about, you know, do I care where they work? You know, how do I manage that? How do I balance that? But I think, um, and this is where we're trying to play a role, a bigger role is there is data available. You can get data about, you know, for, for very narrow skill sets, for, you know, understanding what, how the person has performed in prior jobs and so forth. What is the right, um, you know, compensation for that person? You know, I love that you went to the efficiencies part of contingent. I wanted to ask you, because, you know, this is where consulting firms actually do great work is they can kind of bring in, you know, new ideas, you know, maybe ideas that maybe had been bounced around and in, inside the organization, but they can bring in new ideas and then say, hey, listen, here's what we're seeing with contingent. Here's what we're seeing with people that are gaining some efficiencies in, in working with contingent and here's how to manage them effectively. So I know, you, I know you run into this occasionally, but people that are maybe are reluctant to kind of change their talent strategy or their people strategy, uh, but you just see it in the industry that they're in that, that it's changing and whether or not they change or not, is that's not the issue. How do you how do you bring them over to understand kind of the efficiencies that can be gained and how they can manage that to more of an optimal level? Yeah, it's a really good question. We started with that as well. I think the the approach that we take is is data. You got to have data, yeah. right? And so, as as a consulting firm. Um, you are really only exposed to episodic data, right? You do an event for a company, try to optimize something, you have a, you have a snapshot in time. And we did not think that that was good enough on the, on the workforce side. And so we had, uh, we partnered with a company called Pro Unlimited, which is one of the leaders in workforce management. Um, and they are, they're not a temp agency. They're a vendor neutral uh, intermediary where big companies go and, you know, have their contingent workforce meet, uh, needs met. And then they tell them, I want to get them from, they source themselves or they find the people and they say, just please manage them for me. And what this company has now has is a, an incredibly deep database uh, and, and, and intelligence around what these people cost and what they've done and what skill levels they have, right? Because the problem in, in, in any kind of labor, intermediate or not, is that, 
you're dealing with um, productivity issues, right? You want to know, does this person not only deserve that type of uh, pay rate, but, but what am I actually paying for? And what we found a lot in our clients is that um, the, the, the amount of time spent on specifying a contingent labor person correctly is not the same as in a permanent person, but it should be given the importance. Right? So, so for example, you know, we, we find a ton of over-specification on the contingent labor side, right? Because a, a, a temporary person comes in and everybody loves them. And then they're, they're being, you know, they're, they're, they stay forever as long as they legally can. And they're really, really expensive. And the reason is they're fundamentally overqualified, right? Because the provider has always has an incentive because they're getting paid as a markup, always has an incentive to over-specify the person. So you'll have even in, in very you know mundane light industrial you know clerical jobs you have in most organizations the best you know receptionist you've ever had it was probably a temp right was also the most expensive one so because you're dealing with you've got insight into all of your clients you've got insight into workforce kind of issues and initiatives right so I want you to kind of give us some insight into pandemic, kind of what you saw in San Andrew or seeing, technically we're still in a pandemic, and what you think is going to be right around the corner post-pandemic as it relates to what people are going to be dealing with when they, when they deal with their workforce, both initiatives and issues or challenges, et cetera. Yeah, I'm going to keep it specific to the workforce, right? Yep. Uh, aspect of it because there's other many many other aspects um so i thought this was really fascinating um in the pandemic because it it was it reminded me of a of a forced trial experiment right you had to work remotely so you made it happen right so it's just no questions asked so we basically crammed many many years of you know s-curve adoption into like a matter of months right and it just had to be done and then people figured out, hey, you know, I'm being forced to work from at home. I actually kind of like it or not, whatever, right? But it's been enabled, it's acceptable, and it's pervasive. It's in every industry and it's here to stay. And I think there's going to be absolutely fascinating uh, uh, implications to that. Um, there is, um, I think some of them are totally obvious, right? Are, you know, how do you uh, manage this hybrid remote uh, in-person workforce? Um, you know, I think there's no simple rules. I mean, I heard a lot about people talking about, well, creative people and teams that work together, blah, 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 and all these, you know, very simple uh, uh, sort of rules. I don't think they work. I think there's a human dimension where there's just people that can't do it. There's people that can't do it and there's people that love it. And there's kinds of jobs where it's acceptable and there's other kinds of jobs where it's not acceptable. And smart employers will not just view this from a perspective of what's best for me, but also really almost from a psychological basis, what is best for the type of person that I'm hiring and, 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 and workers have to just say who they are. They have to say, look, I'm not a remote kind of guy. I won't function this way or they'll be unhappy, right? So I think that's one element. I think there's going to be absolutely fascinating second order consequences of this remote working, right? One of them being this idea of health insurance, right? Everybody, and nobody has looked at this yet. Everybody knows that there's healthy cities and unhealthy cities, right? There is a vast difference in healthcare cost, right? Like what does the procedure actually cost location by location? I think that's been reported. Um, there's been a lot of data released uh, from Medicare, a lot of data released under the, um, I think it was the Trump initiated healthcare transparency uh, uh, law or executive order where we can now see, you know, what is the cost for a, 
you know, knee surgery in this country, this county or this county, massive differences. But then there's also the element of massive differences in utilization, right? There is just a different type of health uh, behavior in, in, in New Orleans versus Boulder, Colorado, right? I mean, just, just, you just can't deny that. And so, and so as, um, as companies sort of deal with this contingent workforce, th there's going to be some very interesting, you know, healthcare cost implications and differences that, you know, you can exploit, right? You can say, you know, I would like to, you know, if I really don't care where somebody lives, well, you know, maybe it makes sense to hire somebody who is, lives in a place that has traditionally very low health utilization costs. It's just a very interesting, it probably has lots of legal challenges, by the way, as we're looking into this. So right. I think those are two, two elements that are, that are pretty important that we have to figure out. I love, first of all, I love both. But the second one I haven't heard, as you mentioned, I haven't heard people talk about it as much in, in terms of, you know, we, we, we tend to listen to the, you know, the favorite cities, you know, the, the list of, you know, here's the 15 favorite cities in the, in the U.S., let's say. And that's great. That's based on, you know, some growth and things like that. But when you get down to cost of living, you know, and the, and the cost of healthcare and utilization of healthcare, I think you're really, you're, you're peeling back some really interesting things. And again, if, if, if people, if people can live anywhere, it's probably important for them to know those things too, you know, and, exactly. and to be able to make good decisions or great decisions on where they should live. Yeah. Um, let me ask you some, some buying questions real quick. One is, is, um, you know, consulting used to be sold in, in terms of here's problem, solution, you know, timeline, deliverables, and budget. And things have changed, obviously. So, so how, how should prospects buy consulting from y'all? Uh, so, so I think it should be outcome-oriented, right? I think mm -hmm. if you are a smart client, you want to be very, very clear on what kind of deliver deliverables you get from a consulting firm. And again, I'm, I'm sort of my own perspective is that I tend to, my firm tends to do things that are measurable, right? So if it's measurable, you should find a way, a smart way of holding the consultant accountable for those results. And that sometimes, and you know, I really live this, we've done, I would say about 75 to 80% of our work is contingency successfully based. Um, and if you're smart about it, the way you structure it, you align, align incentives, then it's a wonderful way of, of working with a consulting firm. Sometimes it doesn't work, uh, very well in certain situations because it's hard to measure or you don't want to spend all your time measuring or create sort of, you know, um, maybe conflicts of interest. But if you're smart about it, um, then it's the right way to do it. You hold your consultant accountable for results and pay them accordingly, but also be prepared to pay more if they do deliver really good work, right? Yeah, that's that's an alignment of interest, right? So yep. you you basically say, okay, well, we want, you know, whatever the uh, outcome is, we want to hit that outcome. Now, if we don't hit that outcome, there's, there's, a, there's a punishment, if you will. Uh, but if we overachieve, then there's a reward. And, yeah. and again, that incentive that, 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 that aligns everybody's interest. Yeah. The, the one thing that um, you, you, you probably know this, but there's been a really shift the last 10 years in um, the major consulting users becoming investors, right? So you have mm -hmm. a lot of consulting work is being consumed by private equity firms and venture capitalists and people that have that are very sophisticated users. 
and that are of these services, and they're also large-scale users, right? They concentrate sort of the market share a little bit, uh, but they also uh, work on multiples, right? So that's one thing for a public company, let's say you're a public company CEO or CFO and you want to hire a consulting firm, there's political dimensions involved, right? What if they're really successful? Does that make me look bad? Do my shareholders think I should have done this myself? You know, in all these considerations, when you have a PE firm or an investor hiring a consulting firm on behalf of one of their companies, all they think about the multiple, right? So they don't, they don't, they don't care if Hans from Mitchell Madison saved them $10 million. Oh my God, I look bad. No, they see $10 million and then slapping a 20 multiple on it. They just got $200 million richer, right? That's how they think. So a lot of this stuff has uh, made my work easier because I now deal more often with extremely motivated uh, customers that also, you know, are less involved in the politics of these these types of projects, which is great. Yeah, I, I, I the politics, you know, it can be it can, you can have a great project and just the politics choke the life out of the project. You can great to get to create the great outcomes, etc., and just politics uh, get in the way. I love the alignment. And again, I was going to ask you how do how do how should your prospects and your customers gauge you know success? You went there early in terms of you do you you really kind of focus on things that are measurable, which helps uh, yeah. <laughs> because then it's you're staring at the same everybody's staring at the same number. It's like all right, Correct. we're going yeah. we're focused well, I think, on that. I think I think the key insight this actually came from a former client of mine. Uh, it was a company called uh, Windstream, a communications company. And the, the CFO at that time, who's now the CEO, has, um, we did a contingency project with them. And he insisted that everybody that works uh, with our company is on the same incentive plan as we are, which I thought was brilliant, right? So we, were, we got paid a certain way and percentage of this and that. And he established a bonus pool for anybody who touched the project was paid exactly the same way. And that uh, made a massive difference in in that in that type of work. I love it. Let's yeah, that's last, really really smart. Last uh, thing that I'd love to ask you is, you know, especially first time, you know, buyers, you know, the, the you know, if they've never bought consulting, especially this type of consulting, what should they? What questions should they ask you? Um. So I think. They, they should, what they should do is honestly is ask us for a free assessment, right? So what we do uh, specifically around these performance improvement projects, we don't want to be involved in something that has no chance of success. So we never sell anything that we think we can't deliver, right? So what we do is, you know, we, we engage the client in a diagnostic phase where we get some basic data from the company, we analyze it, we don't charge the client for that. And then we sit together and say, listen, here's what we found. Here's how we would uh, prioritize the opportunity uh, that we found in terms of, you know, how much, you know, opportunity is there for improvement, how much difficulty is there in implementation, how much risk, how much expense we agree in a work plan. And then we say, look, you know, it looks like there's a certain amount of, you know, money, efficiency, value to be had. How do we divide it up? And then we go. So I think it's mostly around, you know, we sort of practice what we preach, right? We use data and we use, um, you know, real, you know, facts and information to make our case. Uh, in general, I would say when you work with a consulting firm, the most important thing to do is to make sure that the person that impresses you in the sales process is also very mm -hmm. close to doing the work. Because mm -hmm. that's the classic, that's the classic, um, yep. 
you know, that's a classic sort of complaint about at least the big consulting firms because that's what they do, right? They have fantastic senior partners and they, you know, they show up like once every other month, right? And then people that are in their 20s doing the work right. uh, who may not even be, uh, you know, in, on, in this country. So, so that's, I think, but that's, most people know that, but I would say that working with the really large consulting firms, um, I think that's still something I would look for. Yeah, it's it's. I say this in software as well. It's you know you you want to meet your implementation team. You know before you sign the contract. It's a similar in consulting as you just want to know. Okay, listen, we've all agree the in terms of what we're going to do. We agree on kind of how we're going to measure it. Now, whom is going to be involved and how are they going to be involved? And I, I think if prospects ask those questions, then they, they have a chance of them really understanding the dynamics kind of behind the yeah. veil. And so, by the way, this is, I don't want to give all the secrets away of how to, <laughs> no. how to effectively negotiate a contact with the Mitchell Madison group. But, um, you know, we're, we're like a small firm, we're like less than hundred people, but uh, so it doesn't really affect us that much, but I think it is actually the next frontier in where, where, you know, uh, uh human resource management and sourcing comes together, which is again, why we did this alliance with Pro Unlimited, uh, because there's a lot of labor, right? That is, doesn't show up as labor, as temp labor. So anything that's governed by a statement of work and SOW, you mentioned, you know, IT, all these contracts, what we find time and time again is that people make this very fundamental mistake that they think of it in terms of, extremes. Either I'm buying a software development team uh, in terms of, you know, the people and mark it up by the hour and I manage the hours or, you know, Accenture says, I'm going to build you an SAP implementation. It'll be like $50 million or it's the fixed price. Right. That's never the right. So it's an, it's always a hybrid. You want to manage. It's never this, this simple because if it's like buying, buying, building a house, right? If you have a fixed price, what's the first thing that's going to happen? Oh, you want a nicer kitchen? I can do that for you. You changed your mind, right? So all these things, it's very simple. You have to really make sure that you understand the pricing methodology for various components that align the incentives or you will get hammered on, on, on change orders and all mm -hmm. these things. And, and it's, it's an open secret. Everybody knows that. But I think really addressing uh, professional services, IT development, uh, high-value human derived um, services is the next frontier. We did some really interesting path-breaking work. It was several years ago, but it's still, you know, absolutely leading edge where we converted a very large amount of legal spend um, in lawyers for insurance defense for a big insurance company into lifetime cost per case for outcome, which had never been done before, but it's very complicated, right? You can't just say, you know, my car crashes, please do the case for $5,000, right? Instead right. of $500,000 an hour. It's very sophisticated mathematics, portfolio management approaches. It's really complicated stuff, but it can be done, right? right. But the simplistic approaches as usual in life in these very high-end uh, SOW type professional services, there is a lot of money in there that, that, that is that to be had. Drops Mike, walks off stage. Hans, yeah. thank you so much for uh, spending time with us and explaining, you know, the Mitchell Madison Group, MMG, and the use case for it. I absolutely appreciate your time, and I learned a lot. So thank My you pleasure. so much. Thank you so much as well. All righty.
And thanks for everyone listening to the Use Case Podcast. Until next time. You've been listening to Recruiting Daily's Use Case Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and hit us up at recruitingdaily.com. 